Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I remember when I found his death certificate, definitely in the house that I was born in before we moved. So I was 11 years old or younger when I found this and I just read through the detail and it's like a very clinical report of devastating violence. What a bullet does to a body, like what a round does to a body and just the organ failure. I think that was probably traumatic. It's again, it's not a typical part of being raised. And even when a lot of children experience violence, to read about it in such a way about a person that you knew, I don't recommend it, honestly. <laughs> but it, I think it had an effect on me and I think it made very real what I was also seeing on the news and out my front window. Like DC was an increasingly dangerous place. And the drug thing only got worse from, you know, 84 to the early 90s. We became the murder capital while I lived there. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. I'm your host of At the End of the Tunnel. And if this happens to be your first time listening to this show, here's what you're in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, basically anyone who's gone above and beyond to be the change they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And in the case of this week's guest, Baratunde Thurston is a writer slash activist slash comedian slash podcaster and he's also a media personality so baratunde grew up in one of the rougher areas of washington dc with a mom who was very much into activism for social justice put it like this she had him reading books on the apartheid at eight years old and in addition to social justice he was also exposed to camping and photography and jazz and then after college Baratune started down a conventional career path working in business strategy consulting, but then he was bitten by the comedy bug and he started moonlighting as a comedian where he would find late night open mics in whichever cities he happened to be traveling in for work. This led to him becoming a full-time comedian. Then he started self-publishing books which mix satire with comedy and politics. He worked at The Onion, which felt like a dream job. In addition to that, Baratune started one of the first black political blogs whose coverage of a 2008 Democratic National Convention has been archived by the Library of Congress. And then he published a book in 2012 called How to Be Black, which became a New York Times bestseller. And that led to many other opportunities in comedy, media, television, with stints on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and appearances on MSNBC. He became an Emmy-nominated host. And then in 2020, Baratunde launched How to Citizen, which Apple named one of its favorite podcasts of the year. This was a fascinating conversation and more evidence that we're all born with everything that we need to find our calling. We just have to be unafraid to do the things that make our hearts sing. Okay, 
Before we get into this conversation with Baratunde, I do want to let you know about the Happiness Insiders, which is an online community that teaches you practices for increasing happiness within, such as meditation, overcoming fear, finding your purpose, accessing your potential. And we have a 108-day meditation challenge that you can start at any time to take your meditation practice to the next level. To get more information, go to thehappinessinsiders.com. There's a free trial which you can use to start the seven-day meditation kickstart. So check that out when you can, thehappinessinsiders.com. And in the meantime, let's dive into the backstory of Baratunde Thurston and see exactly how he found his path. Baratunde, brother, it's an honor, man, having you on At the End of the Tunnel. I've been a fan of yours for longer than you probably know. I used to see you like in the Soho house in the distance. And I go, that's Baratunde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I remember seeing you for the first time in person at a summit on the boat okay. in like 2015. It was the second boat, not the first boat. And going to one of your shows there and just really impressed, man. Just really impressed. Didn't know a whole lot about your backstory, but you definitely left an impression. And so it's well, an honor to now call you a friend. It's it's honor to be your friend. It's honor to get to know you more and to actually be in some kind of relationship. Because your your name stands out in that your name is Light. And so <laughs> I remember our mutual friend Caduce mentioning you. And I was like, I can't, I don't know him, but I know I don't know that name because there's a, there's one light Watkins, I think, in the world. Right. And, you know, in my simplistic and more distant view, it's like, oh, that's that meditation, brother. Right. That's that brother's like literally on another level. Um, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Yeah. Or metaphysically on another level. And there's so few people who look like us who do that in the public. You know, you Google that, you Instagram that. And there's like some Lululemon pants, you know, very attractive white lady who's talking about your chakras. <laughs> and, right. You know, my sister does it. So I've had some access in the family, but it's just few and far between. So I've, I've appreciated you being in that way and offering that pathway for so many people who might mm-hmm. not walk it, you know, if it wasn't somebody that, that was you doing it. You meditate, right? you like 20 do. minutes twice a day. Yeah, I do the Vedic meditation. I started. Who, who'd you train I, with? I trained with the New York Meditation Center. Michael Miller. Michael Miller. He, he, he really? gave my mantra. A woman named Trisha Wong introduced me to him. And I, I left New York in 2019. So it was probably 2018 that I started. Okay. Yeah. So Michael and I trained together to become teachers. <laughs> we both great. started out at the same great. time. He's a really I've, good friend I've of mine. You talk about meditation in, in this podcast and maybe someone else's. And, you know, just like you don't, need the guided thing. Michael was the first entree to meditation. Everything else was apps before. Right, right. Somebody talking to me. It was head yeah, it was inside yeah. timer. Imagine the waterfall now visualize yeah, now notice that. Or even in person, like a facilitator coach would be like, no, you're filling the space with your lungs. And mm-hmm. now you're and those were really powerful, but I never felt something like I did when I just kind of let the silence be and was okay when the silence didn't maintain, right? Mm-hmm. If I wandered, like Michael gave me permission to let my mind wander. And I feel like I was a failed mm-hmm. meditator. <laughs> it was like, oh, the point isn't like a vacuum. It's different. And, you know, you mm-hmm. can ebb and flow in and out of the mantra. And like, it's key to my survival now. 
And when I don't do my second meditation, somebody knows. You know, sometimes I know <laughs> somebody, somebody feels that. Somebody feels that <laughs> tension. Somebody feels that angst. And I get sick more easily when I don't have that release. And my body, you know, that energy has to go somewhere. So mm. I've learned that that is a, a really critical release valve and container. It's somehow mm. like a release and it allows me to hold different things, not in my head. You and Michael training in the same cohort, that makes perfect sense. And it's why it's mm. probably some of what I felt from you even not having like trained with you or taken any of your courses, but hearing the way you talk about meditation, like, I wonder. So there it is. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I want to loop back around to that at the end of the interview. Let's start with talking about childhood. You grew up in DC, thinking back to little Barry or whatever the white people called you when you were a kid. Because <laughs> There weren't that many white people too. around. So that was black people calling me Barry. <laughs> DC in like 1982. That's <laughs> right. Mary and Barry. What was your favorite toy or activity back as a kid? Oh, son. Legos and Voltron. That's so easy. I was a big Legos kid. I really liked putting their thing together, you know, was on the back of the box, but I also Mm -hmm. like just deviating from that plan and just creating my own little universe. And Voltron, that was like the thing at the time. Voltron, Defenders of the Universe. And I was born in 77. And so those Mm -hmm. early 80s, we'd have no VR, we'd have no Fortnite, we'd have Roblox, you know, it was a, it was a simpler time, right? And, and mm-hmm. we had plastic bricks that interconnected and we built physical worlds and inhabited them with our minds. And we had, you know, Transformers and Voltron. They were a related piece, but those inspired a lot of my childhood games. You know, we would play tag, me and my little friends loved me some tag and some dodgeball. Those are like my favorite physical activities as a kid and anything on a bike. Uh, I was mm-hmm. always on two wheels, but dodgeball. We wanted dodgeball to be like an Olympic sport. We're like, this is a real sport. What is baseball? Baseball, you know, a stick. Use your skeleton. That's the stick. You know, use your femur. And just being able to like boot that ball all the way out and complain, new pitcher. I can still hear kids complaining. It was too bouncy. It was too, new pitcher. So I love dodgeball. I love playing with my friends in that way. I love playing tag in the neighborhood and hide and seek on our bikes. You know, we cover a lot of ground and we even our little crew of friends, we called ourselves the Thundercats gang. <laughs> like we were, so we would meet up at, you know, before we broke back to our homes, we would gather in a little huddle. It was like five little black boys and put our hands in the huddle and be like, Thundercats, Thundercats, Thundercats. Oh, and like throw our hands up on the hole and they go home. <laughs> and I, I really love my hood. This was Columbia Heights, right? Mount Pleasant and Columbia Heights. I lived basically in both. Mm-hmm. Technically, my house was situated on the Columbia Heights side, you know, just east of 16th Street on Newton Street. Mm-hmm. But my school was in Mount Pleasant. And a lot of my friends, you know, we straddled 16th Street, but we played a lot over there. The park is on the Mount Pleasant side, Rock Creek Park. And my bike shop, you know, where I first got my, my first bike, that was in Mount Pleasant on Mount Pleasant Place. So I consider myself a child of both and I, I will claim them. I'll claim them all. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. 
That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. In your book, How to Be Black, you went into great detail about the impact that your mom had on your life and uh, the perspective that she was giving you and educating you in. Yeah. I'm just curious, though, growing up in D.C., which is a, quote, chocolate city, <laughs> a little more so being car- surrounded. A little more caramel now, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Being surrounded by mostly Black people. You went to a Black public school before... You went to Sidwell, right? Sidwell yeah, Friends. Bro, bro, through sixth grade, I was just surrounded by mostly Black kids and increasingly Latin kids. Uh, and yeah. A lot of, like Central American kids and their families had, you know, really started migrating heavily in the early 80s because of the Civil War, specifically in El Salvador. So we mm. saw this huge shift in the neighborhood, especially on my specific block. It just got a lot more Latin. Uh, but historically, Mount Pleasant has been it's like Puerto Ricans, Salvadorans, Dominicans, and it's, it's like a third black, a third Latin, and a third white. That's uh, mm. I recently looked this up because I was like, where did I come from? And that was the mix even in the 80s, though it felt real black. So I, I think there's also like a sort of a blackness to the whole city and certainly Chocolate City and black leadership that made it feel more leaning toward black than not just as like this three parts thing. Mount Pleasant was unique. You mentioned your dad would bring you gifts for Christmas. So he wasn't living with you? No, my father was not living with us. He and my mom, they had me. My mother already had had my sister from a previous relationship. So I have an older sister, nine years ahead of me, Belinda. And then I come along in 77. My father was around a fair amount during my early childhood. And then he wasn't. And there were two reasons that he wasn't. The first was... My mother didn't want him around anymore. And he proved to be like a volatile presence and an unsafe presence in the house. So she asked him to not be there. And he at least respected that. And then the second reason is he was killed. So he wasn't living with us when he was murdered. But that was like the final, even after he had moved out, I would see him on visits and occasional stuff. And then that all obviously stopped. So he ended up being shot. The year constantly escapes me, but I'm pretty sure it was 83, 84. So I was like Mm -hmm. seven-ish, let's Mm -hmm. call it. I could get the exact dates, but that's about right. 
So yeah, that's, that's a little bit about the timeline and like his presence. And then the rest of my life was just my mother. She came into the living room and just said, Hey, your dad died that day. Yes. She told me, I don't know how a parent tells their child that their other parent is dead. Like, I don't think there's a good playbook for that. And even with their complexities, you know, and then being mostly broken up, she still like allowed for a relationship between me and him. Mm-hmm. And she knew how much he doted on and loved me. And I believe I did for him, though. It's hard for me to remember so much detail. I was so young. But yeah, I do remember getting that news. And yeah, just being real sad and feeling like I had lost something. I think in hindsight, I also, it's hard to know what I felt as a kid versus what I feel now and project onto Little Baritone Day. Like, was he that eloquent? I don't know. I think he was just like, <laughs> boo, my daddy's dead. This sucks. But I felt like I was supposed to feel sad as well. Like, it's just like a devastating, non-good thing. And I also remember her, there was a funeral or a wake, I can't remember which one, that she gave me the option to attend, which in hindsight was like very unique. And I chose not to go. Like, I didn't want to see a dead body. That didn't sound good to me. And so I I wasn't present for like his send off and I wasn't around his family. And, you know, since that moment, I really hadn't had any contact, you know, with his family. That shifted in very recent years, but for 90% of my life, it was me, my mom, and my sister. And that family idea kind of shrunk to the three of us and our pets for a really long time. Did you understand the circumstances by which he was killed? I, the I, drug thing and all that, or I that was learned, all kept from you? Yeah, I knew he was shot. Hmm. And I learned a lot more details later. But in early childhood, I knew he was shot and killed. I knew it happened at a very early hour in the morning, a very late at night. I think I knew it was on a playground somewhere. And I don't know where I got this idea, but like it would involve some kind of a drug deal (laughs) that went bad. And I knew my father had drug issues. I knew enough of that. Like, Mm -hmm. so I wasn't shielded totally from like, there's some things going on here. I remember when I found his death certificate, definitely in the house that I was born in, before we moved. So I was 11 years old or younger when I found this and I just read through the detail and it's like a very clinical report of devastating violence. You know, what a bullet does to a body, like what a round does to a body and just the organ failure. And I was like, I think that was probably traumatic. It's again, it's not a typical part of being raised. And even when a lot of children experience violence to like, read about it in such a way about a person that you knew. I don't recommend it, honestly, but I think it had an effect on me. And I think it made very real what I was also seeing on the news and out my front window, like DC was an increasingly dangerous place. And the drug thing only got worse from, you know, 84 to the early nineties, we became the murder capital while I lived there. Again, that can't be easy for a parent. It's definitely not easy for a kid either. So I had some proximity to those headlines in a different way. And I just kind of tucked that away, (laughs) you know, basically like after reading that death certificate, I didn't bring it up a ton. I didn't ask a lot of questions. I didn't seek out my father's family and I kind of just kept moving forward, you know, as best Mm -hmm. I I could. And I think that that was my way of coping as well. 
when you were growing up, when you were between those ages of six and 11, and you were witnessing all of this, you know, bullets and stuff, and your friends, older siblings dealing drugs, and your dad died, did you see what you're experiencing now for yourself? Did you feel that you could do what you're doing now, or the possibilities were endless, or what was your relationship to growing up as a Black man in America, as a young person? It was pretty good. I remember going on Mark Maron's podcast a long time ago now, and it was like a huge deal, still a huge deal. There's still some people mm-hmm. like, I heard you on Maron. And, you know, he, he loves daddy stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> he and his father, like, they, there's all this stuff. Every, every episode was like a self-therapy session that mm-hmm. he recorded and streamed with ads in between. But he, I think he was like poking around with me for like, so that must have been like really devastating. It must have derailed your life. <laughs> not really. Like I'm not callous about it. I think partly from this at 44 now, I recognize some of my childhood and how it emerged after my father's killing was just a kid coping, you know, and just a, a parent, a surviving parent, figuring out how, how we do what we got to do. And I fill that void with busyness and extracurriculars and academic achievements and sports and Boy Scouts and like so much cultural enrichment. So partial answer is I was coping and distracting myself, but I didn't see it as that way, certainly as a kid. And I didn't really feel that mostly. What I felt in age six to 11 was it was a pretty good life, little Baratunde. I had my little friends. We played tag. I had great teachers at the public school up the way. I was in a little gifted and talented program. I remember my teachers, they were so loving and thoughtful and smart. I remember our school principal, black dude, spoke seven languages. And we went to a very multiracial, multinational school. We had Vietnamese kids, Korean kids, hmm. Spanish speaking kids, black kids, Haitian kids. All of he's this dude spoke Creole, you know, Vietnamese, Spanish, English, Chinese, like I think Mandarin, and maybe a little Korean. It was wild. So I had these like extraordinary models around me. That just, to me, looked like possibility. My mom was doing this cool job. She worked with computers all day. We had a computer in the house. That made us different and mostly cool, sometimes nerdy and weird. But you know, eventually, you had the computer, you were definitely cool. Like, look at the economy now. Who was right? You know, my mom was mm-hmm. right. And I remember family friends you know, who were characters. I do remember a sense of menace as the streets got rougher, but it's not like... I don't think I felt like I lived in a war zone. I think I learned that later. And I think because I wasn't the parent, I didn't have to. You know, my, my mother bore a lot of that. And I played, you know, and, until I couldn't, you know, until it got too risky and too dangerous. And then we moved. We moved off of that block and we went to something much more suburban in Tacoma Park. But six to 11 were like some golden years. I think the other thing that I can see with hindsight is that my mother programmed to some degree, like the network executives, like programming the channel and like what program, what are we going to slot into the six o'clock hour, the seven o'clock hour? That's what my mom did with my childhood. She's like, okay, so we're having the before school program. So he's going, this little boy is going to get to school at 6 a.m., right? He's covered and he's going to be in school and he's going to do the after school program. He's going to have the higher achievement program for more rigorous academics. On the weekends, he's going to have a little Boy Scouts. Then he's going to have the Afrocentric Scouts, you know, to balance out the American propaganda of the Boy Scouts. <laughs> so we have Black Scouts and Boy Scouts and, and the orchestra program that I was also a part of. 
So there wasn't really a ton of time for like self-reflection or a sense of, uh, <laughs> of loss, you know, or a sense of lack. We mm-hmm. didn't have money, but damn, we were wealthy. You know, like mm-hmm. I had plenty to do and I felt a lot of love. And I think I had a really good foundation, even with the crack wars out the window. It was a positive childhood. I'm jealous of it. You know, when I hear other kids and how they came up when I started going to private school and I would see some of the challenges in those families, it made me feel grateful for a sense of community that I grew up with. Yeah, it was funny. You talked about how your mom didn't want you to go to, I think it was called Lincoln Junior High School because yeah. they were stabbing, they were stabbing <laughs> kids. <laughs> that's, that's like, oh, that's the school where you go to get stabbed, right? Like, right. like a third, funny third is, quarter is class, is you know? My junior high school, Bellingrath in Montgomery, was that school where you, yeah. you, you were going to get stabbed and I had to go there. Like I hadn't had the choice. <laughs> it's just crazy that that is even a possibility that there's a school that you're going to get stabbed or beat up or you yeah. know, something like that at school. Where you're supposed to be there to learn and improve yourself. It's, it's like a jailhouse, you know, backyard or something. And like we're that. so resilient. You know, I mean, we like black people are resilient. I mean, just human beings in general, that like extraordinary dysfunction just becomes normal. And it's like, normal. Yeah. It was just normal. Like yeah, third period you know? is Abby time. And then, you know, make sure you make it to history and fourth period. Right? So it's it's gallows humor. It's like terrible, but it's We've survived worse, I hate to mm. say. And, you know, there's people living today that are like in a civil war and they still go to classes or try right. to. They still have sex and have cookouts when they can and make jokes. So I'm like, oh, snap, people, we're just a kind of amazing at surviving. That was your first contrast between being black and other people, right? Because you were around mostly white people, very elite crowd. You went to the private school, yes. And you went to the private school in this black city, and yeah. you became the president of the, was it the Black Student Union or something like that? Eventually, I did. So in seventh grade, I switched and went to started going to the Sidwell Friends School. And now it was across town. You know, I had to take a couple buses it's one of those stories. I walk uphill both ways. Something I can hopefully tell a grandchild someday. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was super different. There was levels of resource there that were very foreign to me, just in terms of like well-appointed grounds. There were sports played that I never heard of, lacrosse and field hockey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like stick sports that I just mm-hmm. never... T- they had, I knew what tennis was. I never played it, but I had an Arthur Ashe book in my house, so I knew what tennis was. Like I had a black way into a lot of these things that maybe were white. You know, I I did outdoorsy stuff already, but wealth was new and this amount of whiteness was new. And yeah, the culture was really different from the block and really different from my house. So there was definitely an adjustment to that. And race became a different part of my identity. I think being black in a black neighborhood, in a black city, I was proud already. And I think I had a very aware and like conscious mother who had been a part of all this political agitation in the 60s and the 70s and gave me this super black name. So there was no not being black, which I also put in the book, in Kamau's words, as someone I interviewed for the book, W. Kamau Bell. But I feel like my mom was kind of like his mom. You're going to know you're black. But the contrast there was like sort of consciously black versus just being black. The contrast at Sidwell was like being black versus being white, basically. 
It was a really relatively binary situation there. And yeah, that brought new challenges and new awkwardnesses and new opportunities. How were you thinking about success at that time in your life oh. when you were like kind of in junior high, high school? And again, juxtaposed with what your mom was sort of indoctrinating you with at home, yeah. Black Power, you know, Malcolm X portraits, jazz albums, onks and fists and all of that compared to whatever you were seeing in school. My ideas of success, I'm going to pause on that because I do know I have certain distinct memories of how my mother, I think, encouraged me in different ways. Mm -hmm. Like I said, she signed me up for all these activities and she just exposed me to a lot. So I had a lot of experiences, even that other kids on my same block did it just because my mm -hmm. mom was different from their moms. Mm -hmm. And she's like, we go on camping, we go on hiking, we go into this museum, we go into the folklife festival, we're doing like we're going to shop at natural food co-ops, you know? So I, I was different <laughs> on the block. I, our house was different. My sister was different too. And success, I, what I remember is my mother just encouraging me to try stuff. And she was encouraging a lot of artistic things, you know, playing the bass in an orchestra. I specifically remember her cutting out an ad in the print newspaper, because we old, for like auditions for photo shoot to be like in an ad for something. And she was like, you could do that. I never expressed to her a desire to be in print newspaper ads or to be on camera. Right. I had done some performing though, you know, in school, little musicals and cute kid stuff. And I guess she saw that and was like, you could do that. And so she had a pretty open, I think, definition of success. It wasn't like a lot of my friends' parents, like you got to be this profession or I want this from you, or you got to do this thing that I always wanted for myself that I could never do got to play this sport because I played this sport, but I blew my knee out. So I need you to like get glory for dad. I didn't have that pressure. I had different pressure. Be excellent at everything, you know, which is like a whole nother category. But when I got to Sidwell, I don't think I showed up with a specific sense of, well, now I got to get money in terms of what success would mean. I did notice and I felt really early on a sense of burden, though and obligation and indebtedness to my mother. There was not a lot of uh, shields, you know, in terms of what I could witness about her struggles. Sometimes I didn't fully know the context. I would learn some of the details later, but I felt the emotion of it. And I felt how hard it was for her to make this happen. And I knew it was for me. She showed me when we went bankrupt, right? Like she formally declared bankruptcy and she showed me the checkbooks. When I was under 12 years old. You were playing with Voltron and she said, hey, Bear today, come here. I'm going to show you something. <laughs> She's like, I want to tell you something, right? <laughs> and she showed me how she was managing the meager funds. Mm -hmm. And she showed me the social security checks we got every month mm -hmm. because my father was dead and he had been a veteran. And so we got a little something extra and that paid for shoes and that paid for this, that, and the other thing. It was pretty transparent what was being invested in me. And so I felt a different kind of pressure, not to be a specific type of success, but to not squander this, you know, and to be good, right? To like, I don't want to bring shame. I don't want to embarrass. I don't want to let down. And I, I should lead. I should perform well, right? I should crush it. I should ace things. And I'm lucky. I'm really lucky to be here. 
And I can see the stress. She, the job she had was a stressful job. She was a computer programmer, one of the few in that department as a black woman in the 80s. That's, that's rare as hell. And she was dealing with sexism and racism and all kinds of toxic work stuff. And I didn't know the details, but I knew how she looked when she came home. And I knew she kept that job in part to pay for this. So I hustled. I independently got scholarships. I enrolled myself in speech competitions. You know, like I was looking for ways to help her help me. And so like a partner in it a little bit. And that was different from anything else I saw from most of my peers. The kids whose parents could just afford to school were definitely not approaching the opportunity that way. They didn't even see it as an opportunity. It was just school. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that set me apart. And there was a couple other kids there on financial aid who also had jobs. You know, it's like I worked, you know, like I had a job at night at the newspaper at times and I worked over the summer. So I think success, not in terms of what I would be when I grow up, but how do I contribute to me being here now and mm-hmm. what pressure I felt to approach something like perfection, I guess, and make this all worth it. Was that a good pressure or did you feel strained from that pressure as, oh, I'm the man of the house now, or did anybody put put that on you? I definitely put it on myself. And I think the level of transparency, you know, I grew up recognizing the sacrifice by my mother and feeling the need to respect and honor that and contribute to alleviating the pressure that she was putting on herself for me, sensibly. And as I've gotten older, I've gone through different waves of how I feel about it because like I was a child too, (laughs) and it's not necessarily the best thing to do that, right? Like there's a reason that you're, there's a parent and there's a child in this relationship. And there are some things a parent chooses to bear that maybe they shouldn't share with their kid. And, you know, knowing exactly what Sidwell cost, knowing that it would have cost nothing to go to Montgomery Blair the public school, very close to home with a magnet program and choosing to stay at Sidwell. Those are active choices. Like she put me there to begin with. And then she had a moment of doubt where she's like, oh, we're already paying these property taxes now that we moved out to Maryland. You should just go to this other school. And then now I'm invested. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I want to go back to the awkward school where there ain't no black people. So yeah, just trying to make that work. Is it good pressure, you ask? It can be. It taught me a lot. It taught me to ask for what I needed in different ways. It taught me to look for opportunities. It taught me respect and appreciation for what I have in a way that I saw a lot of my friends take things for granted because they had no idea what it took to put them there. I maybe had too much of an idea of what it took, but a specific example, I don't remember if it's in the book or not, I suspect it is, is when Sidwell became really unaffordable. You know, the reason that my mother wanted to pull me out of school wasn't just like, I don't like that school. It's crazy expensive. And you know how much money I don't have. So why don't we change things up, little boy? And I went about preserving my ability to stay at that school. I reached out to the development office. I called a meeting with them and basically negotiated with the school to help me stay there. And that's a powerful lesson. It was a lesson. Yeah. In a type of power that white people of a certain kind of are used to in this country, believing you deserve something and then demanding mm-hmm. it and recognizing your own value. What I learned that I, it's such a repeat lesson. I bring you value by being here. Mm. Little institutions, they set up gatekeeping 
admissions policies, interviews, they flaunt their low admissions rates. Could be a Sidwell, could be a Harvard, could be a Goldman. It doesn't matter. There's some institution that lords its power over those who are not a part of it. And then for the few that join it, makes them feel like they're the lucky ones. And I learned through the Sidwell example, oh, they're the lucky ones. I make these fools look so good. Mm -hmm. I'm up here representing them on, you know, inter-school debate stages and conferences. I'm making presentations to the board of trustees. I'm helping them deal with their race bullshit in a way that's not burning the whole school down. You know, like mm -hmm. they are very lucky that this is the Negro they got. That's worth something. So y'all need to make it possible for me to stay here so you can take credit for my good deeds later in life. Deal? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And that's kind of how it worked out. You know, like they feature me in the alumni and we're so proud of our alum. Like schools like to take credit for the good stuff that their alumni do. They never want to take credit for like the serial killers. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like nobody's out there talking about Bernie Madoff went to my school. <laughs> make right. Best Ponzi schemers. Like everybody's real quiet about, about those achievements. But it was a really useful lesson. And one I, I alluded to, I have to remind myself of, I am a source of worth and of myself. And I cannot allow some other institution to define that for me and make me feel less than them and lucky to be a part of them. No, 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 no. So I'm grateful to Sidwell for that lesson. It wasn't listed in the curriculum, <laughs> you know, the self-worth right. lesson, but it was really powerful. And I doubt most kids did what I did. That was a bold move. <laughs> I skipped the teacher. I skipped the principal. I skipped the headmaster. And I went to the money department. That's Did someone cool. consult you to, in doing that? Or you just probably, kind of, uh... probably it's a level of detail I can't remember. And so mm -hmm. humble me is like, you probably didn't do that all by yourself. <laughs> At the same time, I was familiar enough with even that part of the administration because they had enlisted me to do some of the stuff I had mentioned, like to sit on panels and to draft reports or talk uh, in a little like cross school thing. And mm -hmm. so I was like, I know this building. This is the building where they bring kids to like show off to grownups. And I'm good with grownups. <laughs> you know? They were like, oh, this is a charming little boy, but he's from that part of DC. Oh, this was a win-win. You know, we both got mm -hmm. something out of it. There may have been an advisor whose name I don't remember or a moment. And they said, you should go talk to the folks in Zartman House. Because uh, that right. would be astoundingly savvy for me to have figured that out by myself. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to make note of before we move on from your childhood yeah. is you mentioned that your mom, who would work all day and come home, she would take photos of the drug dealers dealing drugs, not to report them, but because she thought that it would have some sort of historical significance later on. And you bill yourself as a writer, activist, comedian. So I'm wondering if you put writer there intentionally first, like you have that same sort of journalistic nature about yourself. I'm a media person mm -hmm. and I express myself professionally and I do it through writing and I do it through talking and I do it through mics and cameras, all the media. The reason I called myself writer, activist, comedian is a little simplistic and that I just needed a way to communicate the breadth of things I do because comedian, which I had led with for years, was missing the mark. And people mm. are expecting something that's not my focus. And I use comedy. I can be very funny. And I can use that humor to get you to see something you might not want to see. So it's like comedy in service of some other goal. 
largely, sometimes just to be silly, but usually there's like a head fake, there's some sugar, you know, to help the pill go down, help the medicine go down. And uh, the activist to denote some kind of political something or other. So I did leave with writing on purpose. There have been times in my life when I have felt more writerly than others. There have been times when I'm like more speaker, stage performer. There have been times when I'm more like, oh, I'm a TV host. I'm, I'm a show producer host. So it depends on kind of the audience and what I think I might need and what their limitations are in terms of understanding that I'm actually all those things and that I wield words across media in service of some larger aims of like liberty and justice. And I deploy humor to get that done. In terms of the documentary and the journalistic thing, I have been that. And that's been in our family. My sister was a journalist professionally mm. for a long time, you know, basically straight out of college until like eight years ago. And she still does digital storytelling thing, but not in the news industry anymore. So mm. there's been some passive influence there. And then I did school newspapers in high school and in college. So I have journalistic tendencies and like storytelling in me. And my mother with the camera, I'm a photographer too. There's not enough commas to list out everything I'm like excited about, but I'm the best iPhone photographer, you know, like, like I'm real, I'm real nice with the, with the smartphone photo and her preservation and record keeping through that probably affected, you know, my desire to like note things, write them down, document them, store them. And in my case, talk about them. You also mentioned that your trip to Senegal was one of the happiest moments in your life. Talk about what kind of impact that left on you. It was beautiful. I, I traveled to Senegal the summer after my seventh grade year or eighth grade. I'd have to double check the time. No, no, no. I was in high school. I was in high yeah, school. It was 1995, I believe. Yeah. So it was the summer after I graduated. That's why. Mm -hmm. Like It was some big bridge. So high school senior, about to go off to Harvard to the land of white people with a chip on their shoulder. <laughs> and I needed to uh, inoculate myself. <laughs> you know, I needed a heavy dosage of black. <laughs> so before you go to Whitesville, go to the motherland and uh, go to Senegal. And you know, we traveled with a French teacher who was Senegalese, uh, Sidwell's French teacher, who's actually now the head of the upper school. Mama mm. Duque. Love that dude. Always indebted to him for letting me tag along on this trip. My mother wanted to go. We couldn't afford to. So I went. Again, very aware of the sacrifice and all that. Being on that trip, seeing a piece of Africa in that way, seeing Senegal, dope, so beautiful. I mean, it's just, I'm from a Black city and I was still sort of overwhelmed by the range and beauty of Blackness and the vibrancy. And it's sort of like, it's kind of a Blackness in its unadulterated form. And it's still very adulterated because colonialism, I didn't fully understand that at the time. But they speak French, you know, that's not a local dialect of Wolof or Sarah, the other languages which are indigenous. But I remember being amazed by the colors, by the range of blackness, by city and village and coastal. We got kind of a exposure to all three sort of resort life, village life and like urban life. Food was dope. Some of the best food I ever had. Just at this village in Senegal, just a chicken I met earlier that day. I ate that night. You know, thank you for the, for the sacrifice. <laughs> that was some really fresh meat. And couscous with the right spices, you know, doesn't just taste like couscous. It's really magical. And yeah, I, I learned about different relationships that Black people have had to Europe and to each other. And I kind of felt a level of peace and a level of 
closure. You know, we experience as Black Americans, like one side of a long story. And that story didn't begin here. In a way, our story did. Like we're a unique and new thing, but we predate here as well. And that trade, the Atlantic slave trade, was between two continents. And so to visit Goree Island in one of these doorways of no return and hold the shackles is very emotional. And it made a lot of the history lessons and a lot of the marching and a lot of the statements really tangible and really real. And you're just like, oh, somebody went through all this. And as a result of enough of them making it, I get to revisit here. That's a circle closing moment. It's a spiritual moment. It's an ancestrally honoring moment and like being present with the past. Really powerful. You have a knack for bringing a sense of humor to these kind of heavier topics. And I'm curious, when did that start to show up? What were the breadcrumbs of your future comedy endeavors? And were you a student of comedy at that young age? As a young child, I, I didn't know, but I was a student of comedy. I've mentioned this in many different ways. We were not rich people. We were not <laughs> deeply impoverished. You know, we were not on government assistance in a sense of like welfare or WIC checks, but the social security was definitely a supplemental income that helped out a lot. And we didn't have cable. That's a long way of saying we didn't have cable. So we had UHF and VHF, right? Those were our two television systems, the old dials and public television was my cable network. And there was WETA in DC and WHUR, the public station out of Howard University, WPFW, you know, it was like a very black centric public radio station. And I would watch British comedies through PBS. My mom would watch them. I'd be in the room. And then I started watching them. So I, I learned some things through that. I realized later we took a lot of road trips. I would listen to Whoopi Goldberg tapes and I listened to Eddie Murphy. We watched Sanford and Son. You know, I watched Red Fox and listened to some of his stuff on, on records a little bit. I wasn't really allowed to listen to Red Fox. He was very foul mouthed man for a little child to be tuning into. But Whoopi was safe. Bill Cosby at that time was safe. We didn't know he was a monster, but his comedy was felt very safe. And we listened to Bill Cosby's stories and drive up and down the East Coast to all these public mm-hmm. campgrounds, which is, you know, free hotels. And that laid a foundation of something from which my comedy voice would grow later. So that was a breadcrumb. And then Sidwell, you know, became a breadcrumb in that I got the internet pretty early at Sidwell. I was very, very lucky. I was like Mark Zuckerberg level lucky. <laughs> my early access to technology. Now, I didn't convert that into Mark Zuckerberg level riches or Mark Zuckerberg level democracy destroying activities. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. I think net net, I'm good for not having been him. But I did get a privileged, you know, access to like a high speed internet connection because mm-hmm. I went to this wealthy school. And that opened me up to online comedy. And I became this purveyor of comedy, this curator through an email list. And I would just share jokes with my friends and that became more formal. So mm-hmm. high school let me express my comedic taste with my peers. And we say curating now, it was just like forwarding stuff. I had a Nigerian name. I wasn't Nigerian, but I was doing a lot of email forwarding in the mid nineties. And then by the time I got to college, it really became more of my voice started to have some humor in it. And that was through the news, through this kind of journalistic obsession Freshman year of college, I started a satirical email newsletter 
to make the news interesting to my friends who, in my view, weren't paying enough attention to the news. And I was self-righteous and, you know, a bit serious. And I was like, but you should, you should know these things, especially if you go to Harvard and they're telling you you're going to run the world. You better know the world. So instead of just like wagging my finger at them, which no one likes, and I kind of learned that in high school, honestly, (laughs) no one likes the self-righteous friend. Then I was like, okay, I'll make it fun. And people will want to hear that. And people would sign up, you know, for my little newsflash. All those led to eventually working at The Onion and The Daily Show, doing a ton of stand-up comedy and continually finding my voice and the comedic part of it that helps me say some of the things I'm trying to say. But as a young child, nah, I wasn't funny. You know, I don't, I think I was silly. I think I was fun, but I was no one, I don't think would honestly remember me as like the funny child who had jokes. Not when I was 10, but a little activist child well before I was a little comedy child. Was your newsletter at Harvard, was it black centric as well? Like, were you talking openly about black topics? You know, Sidwell helped me learn something I would probably have learned eventually, but I'm a bridge person. Like I like Mm -hmm. all the people and I'm comfortable with all the people. And more uniquely, all the people are comfortable with me being comfortable with all the people. So Mm -hmm. I I didn't get grief from black kids for being friends with white people. And I didn't get grief from like the nerdy kids for hanging out with athletes, right? I was just kind of this Swiss army Negro and that served me well through life. The newsflash newsletter was very black because I was very black. And so it definitely had an infusion of like revolutionary black politics. And I was coming into my own Afros. You know, I put up red, black and green stuff all over my dorm room. Like I had read the books, you know, that, that we weren't supposed to read. And I showed up fired up, but I wasn't like an anti-white blackness, right? It was like, I can't associate with these people. They're devils. Like I didn't go that far. So the newsletter had a satirical tone. I even invented a character that captured this part of my personality, this rollerblading, Afro, cornrow-wearing, revolutionary brother, Rafiq Jones Jr. My middle name is Rafiq. (laughs) And so I would put things in his voice that were more extreme things that I might not say as baritone day. Well, according to Rafiq, oh, this is some bullshit. (laughs) And what a university like this really needs to be about is yada, yada, yada. And that, yeah, that let me play. That's where I really got to play. Also, the initial audience, you know, it started with a black email list. So the initial, the seed audience, which says a lot about how any media property evolves. (laughs) I just called my college newsletter a media property and you let me. So that's on both of us. But it was mostly black. It was like a 90 something percent black list. So I knew who I was speaking to as well. So you graduate with a philosophy degree, Harvard University, 1999. What was the plan? Like now you must have some idea of what you would want to do or where you would want to go in order to become whatever your version of success looks like. Do I start my own thing? Because I know you kind of went into strategy consulting, but was that the plan or was that like a fallback situation? Light. There was no plan. (laughs) the plan was not to have a plan that wasn't the plan either it wasn't an active choice to be like forget plans i'm not about that plan life that wasn't a choice but i lived by a certain amount of intuition and feeling 
I'm like, mm-hmm. well, this feels right. This feels good. And it seems like an interesting opportunity. Let me try it. That was my childhood. I tried a lot of things. And when you're in a scholastic environment, grade school, high school, college, your next step is kind of it's laid out chronologically. You just advance to the next year, hopefully, if you're not playing around too much. So what would I do when I graduated? I knew I needed to pay my mother back. Again, that sense of indebtedness mm-hmm. was real and more important than paying Uncle Sam back because we weren't tight like that. You know, <laughs> I could make a strong case actually for not paying Uncle Sam back because dude owes me. You know, the reparations never happen. So maybe I just don't pay back these Pell Grants and we call it even. You call it even. Right? <laughs> now, I didn't test that theory out in the courts, but I, you know, someone should someday. So I, I had some loose ideas. I was really into technology and the computer stuff helped me pay for college through jobs, excited me creatively. So I was like, okay, I'll do something with computers. There's jobs in the computer stuff. And we didn't even call it the tech industry. It was the computer industry. It was like about boxes and screens and keys. So there was that. And I was into the future. Maybe there was a grad program. I looked into it at MIT and it was journalism. You know, I had worked for the Harvard Crimson and that was lauded as like the closest thing to a professional newspaper that you could get as a college student. Like anywhere in the country, there's a handful of daily student newspapers that have real rigor behind them. Mm, and like mm. AP standards to sourcing and copywriting. And, and I did that. Like, I was like, oh, so I basically a journalist. And ultimately, yeah, I took this path into the fog of corporate strategy consulting. My considerations, though, it was never like, I'm going to go be an artist. <laughs> you know, like, I had to go make some money. There was a bunch of creditors out there that needed me to start making some payments, including, again, my mother. And I had reasons to not do certain things that I'd learned. I was like, okay, I'm going to grad school like for philosophy I had considered. I didn't care about philosophy enough to devote so much energy. Like I did a summer program for philosophy at Rutgers. And I was like, that taught me enough that I don't want to do seven more years of that to just be dominant in an obscure field that not a lot of people talk about. Not for me. Cool. I tried to do a journalism thing as a summer program at the Post. And I had an injury that prevented me from doing that. Ended up doing theater instead. So going automatically into a newsroom after college, that wasn't so obvious anymore because I didn't have that internship to line it up. So, okay, that door is not quite... Huh. And going to the West Coast was a consideration to do Silicon Valley things, but literally like that, I, w- I would have had to get a car and a driver's license. And it was so many levels. It felt hard. And I'm not like one to necessarily shy away from difficult things, but it felt like artificially laborious. And then I learned about another path through a friend. And he's like, you can work at this company. It's right here in Boston. And it's related to technology and business. And they're going to pay you a good amount of money to like learn business stuff and then tell real business people what to do. Cause that's what strategy consulting is. You get paid as a kid to tell grownups what to do with their businesses. All right. If you want to give me money for that, I'll take it. And so I signed up for that and it was the right amount. It let me pay these loans. I got to learn. I didn't have to change too much. And I actually got to experience Boston, which I didn't think, but actually I enjoyed it. I talk a lot mm-hmm. of trash about Boston, but it was nice to experience the city I'd lived next to for four years as an adult, as like a resident and taxpayer and community member. And that affected a lot of my life, my early, my political development and maturity. I met my first wife, you know, because I stayed there and it didn't continue, but it was a very important relationship to me that that has shaped who I am in some ways. So the plan was, I'll figure it out. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. What were your moonlighting activities while you were working at this company? A lot of things. My mom used to call me the Jamaican in the family. <laughs> that old in living color sketch came on where the Jamaicans have like eight jobs. Even as a kid, she's like, you work a lot. I'm like, I learned it from watching you. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you can't put this on me, lady. You set a really high bar. So through college, worked mad jobs. And then after, I was a bouncer for a bit because I was a failed venture capitalist. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning. There's like a whole nother talk in just coming out. Of, when I put it like that, I'd probably get a lot of clicks if I wanted to. But yeah, I, I left consulting, tried to start up a, a little venture capital fund. That failed miserably because I had no idea what I was doing. And I was working with people who knew less than me. So sort of a recipe for disaster. But I had to that find was also out. 2007, right? When you no, got into that? Worse, 2000. The first dot-com okay. crash. Okay. You know, okay. decided yeah, to yeah, launch yeah. during a market crash <laughs> with no reserves. <laughs> with no reserves. Right? We jumped out of a plane into a forest fire with no parachute. Right. We're doomed. We were absolutely doomed from the moment we took off. So I learned. And in the meantime, I was a doorman at a club. Sounds more elevated than bouncer. I was a well-dressed bouncer. Mm-hmm. And I was so good, I never had to physically mess with anyone. Mm-hmm. Use my words and a little bit of my presence. And you know, there was a meteor guy next to me that things got real tough. We worked in teams. And then, yeah, I, I, was at, I worked at a temp agency for a while. I worked at Tufts University in some grad program there doing like data entry. And yeah, I got pretty entrepreneurial myself with you know doing stand-up stuff and trying to create products that I could sell. Because I think, oh, artists that have products do better than artists who just have jokes or who just have songs. And my wife at the time was a musician. I'm like, every musician has a CD. No comedian I know has anything. They're just like, check me out on my next show, buy two drinks. I'm like, that's a terrible business model. So I wrote a book, a little self-published pamphlet. It's probably better called a pamphlet at this stage. But whatever, I wrote it, I photocopied it, and I sold it to people. Was that better than crying, or was that yeah. your second? Okay, that was one of that was the most legitimate one. I also literally stapled pieces of paper together and charged people for them at the back of the. I book. was wondering about that because I looked at it and I was like, I wonder if you self published this book or you went through the whole book deal process or no? What that situation I, I was there are some cases in my journey where I'm like, yo, I was a dog with a bone. Uh-huh. And it wasn't part of a preset plan, but in hindsight, it feels like a plan. And so one instance was while I was doing the consulting stuff, I was also starting to do stand-up and open mics. And I used the day job to fund and facilitate the night job. And you, know, you have to travel around as a consultant sometimes, go to these different cities. They're paying for it. They're putting me in a hotel. So I'm going to do stand-up in this town too. You know, there's no meetings at 11 p.m. for work, but there's a club or a bar with a microphone somewhere in this town that's letting random people jump on stage and tell their terrible jokes. So I will do that. I commuted weekly to New York from Boston to do a class in Dumbo, comedy writing class. And then I used the corporate discount from a client to fly my ass to New York for $50 uh, because they had these like massive discounts. Like I'll use it, you know, and then I did work for them, you know, while I was there. So I found these like creative ways to get some of this stuff going, to get it popping. Do you remember your first bit that killed? I could find it for you. It's not on the blockchain, so it's not like immutable, but there's a record. And I remember my most frequent early joke, which is- Okay, what was that? 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My full name is Baratunde Rafiq Thurston. Baratunde is a Nigerian name. It means one with no nickname. Rafiq is an Arabic name. It also means one with no nickname, strange enough. Now, Thurston, that's a different one. That's an old, uh, that's an old British name. It means property of Master Thurston. And everybody like, ah, oh, that's got an interesting that communicates a lot of, you know, it communicates me. It communicates mm-hmm. like someone who knows his history a little bit. And I was a little self-effacing. I dragged that joke through <laughs> the mud. Like I told that so many times. I used to get it as a request. And then I had, you know, some current events jokes that just die because they're no longer current. And well, it was interesting as you were constructing your 2019 TED Talk without even realizing that you were preparing for that because that's how you opened that talk. Yeah. And I, I reprised it for the TED mm-hmm. Talk and I changed the punchlines, but I kept mm-hmm. the structure. It's a good structure. My name mm-hmm. is a good structure. I'm, I'm, I love my name. Mm-hmm. And if I just have to introduce myself, I can just say my name and it communicates a lot. Baratunde Rafiq Thurston. All right, so we're not dealing with like a John Brown here. This is different, you know, <laughs> okay. And how I say it and then what I say about it. You know, I talked about my mother more in the TED Talk version and updated the jokes, but it was, it was basically the same thing. So I'm still getting life out of it. At this point in time, are you identifying as a comedian who's kind of masquerading around as a bouncer or a strategy consultant or whatever? Or are you still thinking about comedy as just like, oh, it's this thing I do as a hobby. I enjoy doing it when I can and that kind of thing. There was a transition. So I, I did comedy heavily from, what was the year? 2001. So a few months after 9-11, 2001, 2002, really early 2002 until probably like 2010. I had eight years of like, I am serious about this. And within that eight, you know, 2000 to 2009-ish even, like it got me to New York. So I started doing the open mic thing. I started printing my own books and hustling to the back of the club. I started <laughs> podcasting and making my own shows and putting them up on RSS feeds on my website before the name podcasting even existed. And a little front porch podcast, which started as just the front porch radio hour. And I was like, oh, I think there's a podcast now. And I started blogging. You know, I'm doing all this mm-hmm. multimedia digital stuff. And the comedy thing was the through line. And I was getting good. I was auditioning for stuff. I was starting to get paid to do shows. I was opening for people on the road. Then I was middling for people, doing shows up in New Hampshire and Vermont and Western Mass and coming down to New York and doing shows in the city, you know, and Stand Up New York and Comic Strip Live and the New York Comedy Club, doing festivals. So I was going through the the path where this was no longer just like, a cute thing I do to feel better about myself. I was flying across the country, committing funds, and I was selling tickets to shows and being paid to be funny on stage in front of drunk people. That's a comedian. And I came to New York on the strength of that and got the job at The Onion on the strength of that. I was like, oh, this is a kid who's comedy, legitimate comedy chops. And then once I got to New York, started hosting shows there every week. I mean, I was on stage multiple nights a week, running around town. And I got just to the edge of just fully being in that life. I'm contemporaries with a ton of folks. You know, I was on stage with a lot of these people, you know, who got their specials and do their shows and whatnot. And my path is a little different from that point. So I got super serious. I auditioned for The Daily Show back in 2000, like 
five. <laughs> you know, like that's how serious I was. 2005, I still lived in Boston when I auditioned for The Daily Show the first time. I crushed one and I absolutely was destroyed by the other. Like <laughs> I destroyed and then was destroyed. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to be a correspondent on, on that kind of a platform. But I was super, super, super into the comedy thing. And I ebbed and flowed. And I think my relationship with comedy evolved through my work at The Onion, through my relationship with technology, and through some of these other things I care about to be like, I don't think I'm here to just grind it out on club stages, you know, and like try to get a special and get my one hour. Like there are certain blocking and tackling moves one does if one is a serious comedian. Dave Chappelle tell you all about it. Like he's very serious about who's a comic and who's not. And so I didn't finish that journey, right? There's a lot of things I've kind of started and not finished in the traditional path, but they've helped build me. And I've graduated in a different lane or created a different lane. So it's like, oh, so for me to keep calling, that's one of the reasons I like switch the order. I'm like, I don't, comedian, writer, activist, then people are gonna expect, oh, what's your 10 minutes? What's your 25 minutes? What's your special? Where can I see you? You've been on Comedy Central. And I just, I'm not gonna meet those expectations because I'm, I'm not trying to be that. But if I use words that lead you to expect it, then that's on me. And people are like, oh, well, you can I, if you're not on Comedy Central, you're not a comedian. Ah, oh, here we go. Okay, well, I'm not a comedian, but I'm a stand-up comic. But I use comedy to serve. I don't have to hear all that. <laughs> Brother, is you funny or not? <laughs> <laughs> so I was thumbing through your other earlier books, and oh it's interesting. Why would you because- do that, Light? Why would you, <laughs> no one does that? But it's interesting because the format of your earlier books is almost the same kind of format as How to Be Black. Hmm. So it was almost like How to Be Black was really an extension of this earlier work. So what was the genesis of of that? Because that book became a bestseller. Was that something that you got in, you know, because the the traditional process is you you get an agent or maybe somebody says, hey, I'm an agent. You you know, I really love your work, your writing, whatever. I don't do anything traditionally. (laughs) <laughs> I, I haven't. In my younger years, I was self-critical and I'd be like, it's because I lack focus and discipline mm-hmm. and refuse to choose. I'm unable to choose. That's how I would criticize myself. When I did the newspaper in college, I did the photography department and the news department mm-hmm. you know, in terms of my like audition to be a part of the newspaper. People hadn't done that before. Like, you have to choose. I'm like, I don't want to choose. I like both. Let me do both. Fix it. <laughs> and they came up with this like hybrid program to let me be a part of both. Cause I'm like, I see with images and with words and I paint with both. So I, I want to do both. And now that's the model. Like every journalist, you got to be able to shoot and edit and write your own copy. And I was demanding that someone break the rules to let me do that in 1996. So I'm right, but I'm not right at the right time for certain people's expectations. So I had to like reframe that judgment as like lack of focus to like, well, I'm integrating or building something differently. A book came about, it wasn't on my list. It wasn't a part of a plan. <laughs> Even though I had published a lot of things on my own, the idea of writing a book called How to Be Black wasn't like a literal thing on a roadmap. And I wrote the book because a publisher saw me doing my thing at a tech conference. I was at a web 2.0 conference at the Javits Center in New York. And they were wild about what I was saying on stage. I had created a lane for myself talking about tech and race in a comedic way. And there wasn't that many people doing that. There just wasn't that many Black people talking about tech, period, much less making it hilarious 
and injecting racial commentary into it, my own lane. And it was about hashtags and how black are you and this comedy community I was a part of in New York. So I was like, being a comic really helped hone my chops, working at The Onion helped too. And so she was like, you got to write a book. I literally was like, no, I don't. I'm good. You know, like I wasn't, she had to come at me from three different people because I just wasn't motivated by that. I wasn't like my dream to get a publisher to like stamp me and put a book out. So finally I sat my black ass down and listened. And they said, look, you have a voice. You're already a good writer. We've read your blog. This shouldn't be that hard for you. What are you thinking about? What do you might want to write a book about? And I had a partial book already in mind that my blogging partner, Cheryl Conti, we wrote at this blog called Jack and Jill Politics. We had been approached to write a book and it fell apart because the publisher ghosted us. And we had put all this time in, we wrote sample chapters, proposal, had a lawyer looking over stuff. Like we had a deal memo, you know, and they literally just disappeared. And this was the same publisher. So I was like, well, look, last time I was dealing with y'all, you fell off. So pardon my hesitance, but here's what that book was kind of going to be. So I think, you know, something around being black right, and what it means to like speak for black folk and whatnot. And my title idea at the time was like the Negropedia. (laughs) That's something I think even Cheryl and I may even talked about that together, like the new field guide to Negroes. That was another Mm -hmm. like working title. And actually a comedy friend of mine had I didn't know, but they found out a few weeks. He published a book called The Negropedia. Well, that's oh, wow. I can't remember his name now. We fell out of touch, but he was big in stand up and that book did well. And so, anyway, old white dude in a meeting says, What about how to be black? And I was like, That's old white dude. Yeah. And he wasn't, it's so disrespectful to reduce him to that. And it's not accurate because yeah. he wasn't old, but by my relatively young age at the time, and he had gray hairs, he could have been my age now. He could have been 44. And I'm like, Some old white dude said, But he represented something that was very different from what I thought the book would represent. So it's just really funny to me that like he ended up titling this book, but it gave me a level of audacious permission. And I leaned into that and used it and yeah, wrote a book that ended up selling well. I also marketed the hell out of it because Mm -hmm. I was an author who was not shy. I was like, oh, you want to put me on stage? Yeah, I'll do that. You know, it's not like I'm going to write in my shed and let somebody else sell it. Like, nobody can sell it like me. And I had a strategy. And so part of that is why that book did what it did. And it was good. I think it was a good book. And in hindsight, yes, it was a culmination of the books I practiced writing. It was this multi-format things that the first person memoir and recollection. It had these interviews and it had these satirical how-to guides all in one. And even that, you know, the, the deal with the publisher it nearly fell apart after I had committed, after we had the title, after I had written most of it, because the woman who recruited me got fired. And the new person who stepped in did not share the vision. And it became this whole thing. And she was nervous and she didn't like the title. She's like, they thought it was too in your face, yeah, too radical. Like, it was and like all aggressive, that. it was going to offend people. And they didn't, they didn't like the, the substance either, though. <laughs> Because there was too many things going on here. Which is, is it a memoir? Is it a satirical guide? Is it a profiles of interviews with people? You have to pick one. Constant refrain, right? Right? Mm-hmm. You got to pick one. I'm like, first of all, you already said yes. So like, why are you changing? And I'm not the person that picks one. That's why you wanted me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wasn't in a confident place at the time. And I was dealing with a tragedy. 
literally at the time, a friend had committed suicide. So mm-hmm. I didn't care. I was like, fine, fuck it, no book. I didn't want to do this to begin with. I told you. <laughs> I was happy writing for the internet. You wanted me to kill trees and print my ideas. I didn't. So whatever. And my lawyer walked me back from the edge and she's like, let me handle this. And she went and fixed it. And she had me, doc- she just asked for some documentation. She's like, I need all these meeting notes that you took. I need your appointment calendar. I need these emails. <laughs> and, and she put together a freaking dossier, which you know put them on their heels. And basically, like, are you sure you want to break a contract with this person on a book title you've already agreed to in writing on these? I don't think you want to do that. I think you want to fix this. <laughs> and they did. And they came to their credit. They swooped in. They cleaned it up. I had a different editor. And we finished strong. But it, I mean, it almost didn't happen to begin with. And then almost didn't happen in the middle. <laughs> and some of this stuff, you know, in hindsight, if I, have, if I list it, it's like, oh, yeah. And then I wrote a book and then they hit the bestsellers. But if you zoom in, yo, there's a lot of pixels in there that paint a different picture. At this point in your life, did you feel like you were on your purpose? Did you feel like you had found your thing bridging comedy and activism and writing yeah. and blackness and tech and all of that? There have been many moments when I have felt that. When I published Better Than Crying in maybe that was 2005. That was 2004. 2004, even earlier. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So when I wrote that book, like, I mean, How to Be Black, yeah, yeah, yeah. Better than crying. My confidence was off the chart. I was like, this book is amazing. Look at the cover art. Look at, you know, I had my friends help me edit it. Like, I thought it was the best thing ever. And I'm like, when this book drops, I'm not going to need to do this consulting stuff anymore. I'm going to quit my job. All the TV networks going to invite me on. They're going to see me as the new, like, Al Franken, the new Jon Stewart. Those were like the dudes at the time that had the political comedic voice, you know, kind of, they owned it. George Carlin was kind of on his way out. He was aging out and would soon pass away, but people were, it was all about Al Franken. He hadn't run for the Senate yet. He was just sharp on the comedy and doing the Air America thing. And of course, John Stewart at the Daily Show, peaking, you know, just starting to peak. And I was like, that's me, but I'm young and I'm black and I'm fucking cool. And this book is, is a testament to all that. So I was slinging that book on the streets I would go to movies and sell it to people waiting in line for like, you know, Inconvenient Truth or Bowling for Columbine, one of those Michael Moore. I'm like, you like Michael Moore? You're going to love me because I got all that with swag. You know what I'm saying? Like I was on and the shit landed with a thud. Like, like I did definitely <laughs> needed a job after that book came out and I, I kept a job and agents didn't call and I wasn't booked on the late night shows for my incisive political self-published commentary. So when How to Be Black came out, I did want it to be what I thought Better Than Crying would be. I knew it stood a better chance. I had more muscle behind it. I was better. I was eight years better, seven years better in terms of my writing chops and my voice, the clarity of it. And I did feel somewhat like I had carved out my place. The intersection has been clear to me for a while. Don't make me choose between race and technology and politics. Let me be somewhere where I can be all those things. That's what I ended up being able to do at The Onion. That's why I love, of all the jobs I've ever had, that was 
the one that brought me the most joy by far. And I think in part is because I got to be the most me by far when I was working there. And it's like an important lesson, even as I'm now in another phase of my growth and development and I've achieved some things, but we all want to do more that want to do things we haven't done. And so when I approach those opportunities, it's good to remember that the intersection is my place, not a specific street. (laughs) Don't make me pick a street, meet me at the intersection. If I can remember that, I think that'll be helpful. So once the book came out and I'm out here flirting with these multiple worlds, I knew that I was onto something. I didn't know what it would lead to and what shape it would take. And like the container it would live in, the bank account (laughs) that it would fill up. I didn't know all those details. And I stumbled through and started a company and figured out some things, left the onion and made a bunch of stops. The onion, my own company cultivated wit, a ton of speaking stuff, the daily show, a national geographic show, a show on a network called Pivot that don't even exist anymore, <laughs> like TV pilots that no one will ever see, so many shows that didn't get born to you know, you, know, you and me talking right now and, uh, and a lot going on now that I would never have predicted. You well, know. in your podcast, How to Citizen, which yeah. couldn't have come at the better time. Yeah, <laughs> born from the ashes of a television show that never made it. Some of the things that I don't finish continue in another form. It's like many lessons in reincarnation, you know, mm-hmm. these little forms of life in these media projects, things I absolutely failed at, I can still use. You know, in some ways, I failed at The Daily Show. Like I didn't last very long. I was technically fired. <laughs> no one wants to choose that way out. But man, I'm grateful for what I learned there and what I got there. And yeah, this podcast, How to Citizen, is the culmination of a lot. It's not the only thing I will do, but I'm very proud of it. And it builds on these things that I care about in this way of talking and telling stories that I hope people will listen to that is on a subject that a lot of people don't want to listen because it's boring. <laughs> you know, There's no entertainment value to like civics education. I'm definitely not going out with a pitch. I have a new civics education model. Nah, got a dope new podcast. We talk to amazing people about how we take control of the way society is shaped for us and meet our needs collectively. I'm tired of hearing bad news. I want to make good news. Right? That's more galvanizing. And I'm tired of being told I'm powerless. I want to find out how to use the power I have. I want to show that we can generate power. Oh, so it's not about the, the fat cats over there who have everything. I have power too. Yes, you do. If you organize, if you recognize it's not just about money and votes, it's about so much other stuff. So that mm-hmm. stuff you know, clearly gets me excited. <laughs> I'm just, I'm hearing myself like, oh, you really care about this stuff. And how do I, how do I make it fun? And how do I make it a story? How are you thinking about success these days? And I'm, I'm asking this question because it evolves for all of us, especially <laughs> as we get older and as we have more life experience and we experience more failures and we start to see what's truly important. So I guess that's another way of asking you, what's truly important to you these days? My relationships with certain people are really important to me. My relationship with my wife really important. And we've been together, married or not, going on eight years. Now I'm really understanding. But from this vantage point, eight years in, I'm like, I'm getting what a relationship can be, what it involves, how it can evolve, how we grow together and still be ourselves, our individual selves, but also in this collective unit of this relationship, which is the same 
basic idea of like being in a city, being in a community, being in a society, being in a nation. We got to let ourselves be individual and evolved. We have to have a shared enough sense of common reference, common identity that, that there's a we there, not just a bunch of me's. So that's imp- it's important to me to keep navigating, valuing, and like investing in key relationships. And I've not always prioritized that because there's, there's always another gig. There's always another job. There's always another hustle, another thing to grind on. And I am very hardworking. I don't really need to prove to anyone that I can put in work. I can put in hours. In fact, it's kind of retrograde for me to pull an all-nighter at this stage in my life. Something has failed in my <laughs> management skills and my evolution and my task system if I'm pulling an all-nighter at 44 years old. You know? <laughs> My body's not built for that. Work smarter, not harder. So success is in part having enough space in my life to invest in and draw from, you know, to be in relationships that matter. I think success is also creating a space where I can be as much of me as possible. Mm. And I have mm. played a game and I've lived in a, in some ways, a very responsive life. I'm like a little quick reaction force to opportunity. Oh, you want me to, I can do that. And then I crush it. And then that strokes my ego. Cause I crushed it. And I get this great feedback. It's like, yo, you were so good at that. You should just do that. And then I skip the part where I ask, do I want to do that? <laughs> Is that the best use of me? And what part of me or parts of me are, am I not bringing to that? Like how limiting might that be? And so I'm in a, in a moment right now, literally right now, the next few weeks where I'm like trying to pause and ask myself, what feels good? What do I really enjoy doing? What are the parts of me that activate and, and bring life to me? And what can I create that holds as much of that as possible? Mm. As opposed to who can I convince to let me do a piece of me to enrich them, but kind of makes me look good. <laughs> I can play that game. Hollywood's built on that game and I could probably crush it, but I'd be crushed by it too. I wouldn't entirely be me in the process. So it's a challenge, but success will be me creating something that lets me be me and gives me enough space to be among the people who I care deeply for. Mm-hmm. Because I really don't want to create a situation where all I do is work and then tell these other people it's for you. I'm doing all this for you and I never see these fools. That's inconsistent at best. It's a lie at worst. Maybe a lie I will convince myself of. Millions of people do it. You know, it's hard to not do it, but I have enough clarity and enough luxury of time to consider not doing that. (laughs) The test will be, can I resist the temptations to do that? They are lucrative Mm. and they are easier in some ways than figuring out what I want. So that's what I'm navigating right now. So my final question, if you had to summarize, let's say a kid was reading your biography, you know, two generations from now, and you had to summarize the takeaway from your life experience up to this point, what would that, how would you summarize that in sort of one principle or one statement or one aspect of what you've learned? How would you summarize the takeaway of the Baratunde Thurston experience (laughs) 44 years old? The BTE. Welcome to the Baritone Day Thurston Experience. Two generations from now, I am sure you are not reading this in book form because those will have been banished and relegated to the dustbins of history by now. This is probably some kind of metaverse-tastic 
holographic experience. So let me just wrap to you, youngish person. What I have learned so far is to be open. And I'm in the process, continual process of being in tune enough with myself to know how I feel, what I want, what I'm good at, and how that can intersect with what the world needs. There is no simplicity to it. It's relatively simple to string those words together. It's, it's hard to live that way. But I'm figuring out and finding ways to touch base with that principle myself. Being open is, is a part of it. I think it's helped me have enough experiences to give me information that I might not have had if I was on such a narrow path early on. And there's, if there's a last piece that I'm kind of feeling into, success, whatever that is, or achievement, it's not static. I'm finding myself in the language of relationship, love, and evolution increasingly. And I don't think we just like get to milestones and then stop. We adjust the journey. I'm like, okay, what's the next milestone? What else can I do? There's something in us that needs that. And if you're going to hold to any principle, whether it's mine or someone else's, principles aren't static things that you just like decide, this is what I'm about. And then I get there and I'm, I'm good. I'm done. You should be open to changing how you interpret the principle and how you adhere to it. And even that you do. Just because you express some fealty or loyalty or commitment five years ago, don't mean you're still committed now. Check mm -hmm. back in. And just because you committed five years ago doesn't mean you need to recommit now. Maybe you've changed. So I'm arguing for a process more mm -hmm. than a specific set of principles of recommitment and reconnection and then a relationship with yourself, you know, knowledge of yourself enough, curiosity about yourself enough that you're willing to question yourself, am I still about this? Is this still important to me? And if not, be honest and adjust accordingly. You'll be successful. <laughs> you know, does, I'm not saying you're going to be rich. I'm not saying you're going to be on some list of most influential whatever. Or you're going to get some award or external accolade, but you will feel successful. And I feel like that is where your meditation practice comes in because it allows you to feel open. It allows you to be aware of what you're resonating with, what you're not resonating with. And then ultimately, when you put all that together and you pan back, it's being process oriented as opposed to outcome oriented. Yes, we need process. That's how we grow, actually. Mm -hmm. And then we can adjust within it. But, you know, so many ways of saying this it's about the journey, not the destination. It's about the process, not the outcome. And I think that's democracy, right? I think that's any functional form of like collective decision-making. Democracy is just process. It's just like how we figure out how to move power around and who gets what, <laughs> when, in a way that feels fair enough that we don't all murder each other. That's it. That's, that's democracy. I'm talking about process. You know, it's an old play on practice. So yeah, man, these are some interesting questions, Light. Brother, this is it, man. I think this is a good place to end. Great. Great. <laughs> and I want to wrap this up by talking about childhood again and oh, those boy. Legos, because yeah. from hearing your version of your own story, yeah. what stands out to me is that you were able to master this ability to sort of construct yourself to fit one environment, deconstruct yourself and then reconstruct yourself to fit another environment. And you, you have to have a lot of courage to be able to do that. And you made that not a single act or, you know, an occasional act, but a lifestyle. And I feel like that's 
the model, that's what you're modeling now for all of us is being adaptable, being supremely adaptable to these different environments and, and being unafraid to be yourself, to be fully yourself and to bring everything from your past, the good, the bad, and the indifferent into whatever it is that you're most passionate about now. And that ultimately becomes your purpose. That's how you live your life in a purposeful way. So I just want to acknowledge you for that example and for sharing your story so openly and vulnerably, because you're a type of guy, you've done a thousand of these interviews, you know, <laughs> you've been asked these questions, but I feel like if to me as the interview were, it felt yeah. like you were really remembering these things for the first time. So I want to thank you for that, bringing that level of authenticity and presence to the you're conversation welcome. as well. Thank you for being you. I definitely wasn't trying to phone it in with you. <laughs> and as we said, you know, very early, yes, I have written these stories, some of them before, I have remembered them, but they're different every time. I'm different every time I re recall them. So it is thinking about my father, thinking about my mother, thinking about the block, like Sidwell, how does that fit now? How does that Lego mm. piece fit mm. into my little Lego village now? And nice job with the Lego dismount <laughs> there. That's that's go. You're a professional. I like that. You're really paying attention. Thanks, brother. I look forward to seeing you at some point uh, yes. in person. And we'll we'll sit down and have a tea and, and have a proper catch up then. Let's do that. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Baratunde Thurston. His book, How to Be Black, is still just as relevant today as it was when it first came out. And it's, of course, available everywhere books are sold. And I would recommend following him on social media at Baratunde, B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E, as well as his podcast, How to Citizen. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you will see that my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is now out in all versions, including audio. So definitely check that out when you can. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which has a free trial and a seven-day complimentary meditation kickstart followed by a 108-day meditation challenge if you join. And being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. Just go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to help me share these conversations. Ratings matter way more than you probably realize when it comes to making this podcast more searchable. And a small little thing that you can do right now is just take 10 seconds to rate the podcast. Just look at your screen, click the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see five blank stars and just click the star all the way on the right. Thank you in advance for that. I hope to see you back here next week for another story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com. 
and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.